show is back, and there's a Mandalorian in it. Seems like a good time to ask if Star Wars' future is on the small screen. It's been 20 years since Final Destination first cheated death. We look back on the classic teen horror. They've been to the year 3000, but how much has changed? Are they living underwater? We check out Star Trek Discovery's big jump to the future. I'm Richard Edwards. I'm Tanavi Patel. I'm Dave Bradley. And there's all this, plus When Spidey Met Strange, a perfectly splendid haunting, and Mad Max Beyond Mad Max in Robbie the Robot's Waiting, the podcast where there are no accidents, no coincidences, no escapes. You're right. Hello. Hi. So I think we're going to save the haunting of Blind Manor for our Halloweeny part two. It feels kind of appropriate. I think the big show we've all been watching this week is Star Trek Discovery, which has blasted its way to the 32nd century. That's kind of a big change. What did you think? I loved it, actually. I thought it was good. I thought it was a um, show sort of making a confident move and, and uh, increasingly um, feeling like it's something distinct. One thing I did miss about this episode was the rest of the crew. I love the new characters. Absolutely adore the new characters already. Instantly, they feel fully formed. Love Book. I uh, love our lone Starfleet officer in his in his base. But I do miss the rest of the crew. One of the things that I thought Discovery always had going for it was it had Tilly, you know, it had uh, had a great little setup of, of, of interesting characters and we haven't seen them so far this season. It was a good episode. I agree with you on the new characters. I think Book is very interesting from the get-go. David Ajala, I liked him as Manchester Black in um, um, in Supergirl and it's, he feels quite similar in a way. But he, yeah, he's he's good in that role. And I think, yeah, the whole new kind of concept and the sort of new world that they're in and everything is pretty cool. I do feel like uh, Sonic and Martin Green is just overacting at times. <laughs> and it just gets to me. And, uh, yeah, so I still haven't warmed to her. Her screaming on the mountain and all that kind of craziness <laughs> for a half Vulcan. I don't know. She is human. She just spent a lot of time with Vulcan. Yeah, so that's why I kind of consider her as kind of like half yeah. Vulcan because she's anyway whatever no um, I, but uh, I agree with you but I quite um, like but I think it's I quite like that about her and maybe it was kind of pushed a little bit too much this episode with her being hit without that uh, truth drug which made her behave out of character but it was a bit of a chance to see that character letting some of those shackles of the Vulcan teaching to see Michael Burnham laugh out loud for instance was a kind of a rare treat I thought we haven't seen a lot of that so it's a little bit more um, perhaps almost too much I, I know what you mean but nice to have a bit of, a bit of range for once because often she was very deadpan in the in particularly in season one I thought I kind of thought it was an okay episode. You know, it was decent. I think it was interesting for what it sets up. I love the world that it's set in. Yeah. I I think that's brilliant, this kind of future. You know, it's Star Trek with all the shackles off. This is like 900 years on from the previous season of Discovery. And if you think about it going the other way, it's like going back to the Dark Ages. That's how much can have changed. And the way that they've shifted technology is great. They've got programmable matter. They've got portable transporters. They've got these amazing sort of handheld weapons. But at the same time, they've taken things back in time because they can't use warp because there's this dilithium problem, this Mm. so-called burn where the dilithium stopped working. So it's kind of the future with all this amazing technology that is way beyond what's on Discovery. But Discovery has this advantage that everyone else in this universe kind of doesn't have. And that's a really good setup. Plus, they've also got like the weird Chinese dragon worm thing and stuff. I don't understand where that was from. I kind of thought it was from Star Trek Lower Decks. I'm sure there was a bit in Star Trek Lower Decks where someone got eaten by a worm and spat out. So (laughs) They borrowed it. (laughs) I think Star Trek occasionally has tried before this 
idea, or rather I should say the, the Gene Roddenberry legacy has tried this idea of separating a Starfleet crew from the Federation and seeing what how they behave under pressure. And, and that idea was kicking around for a while. I think it might have even been one of Gene Roddenberry's notes that became the show um, Andromeda, if you remember that. So Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda is not set in the Star Trek universe, but it's, it's set in the Commonwealth, which is the Federation for all intents and purposes. And, and Dylan Hunt's crew gets trapped in a black hole uh, field and it gets propelled into the future. And so it's got a very similar kind of premise. And then if you look to things like uh, Voyager, Voyager is the same idea, but distance rather than time. They take a Federation ship and they fling it so far from the Federation that it might it can't connect anymore and, and to see how the, whether the values of Starfleet can persevere under those circumstances. So this is kind of an idea that the Star Trek universe has flirted with a, a, a couple of times because it's such a great idea. In fact, you know, the, the idea of being separated from from the, the, the Federation and still preserving the core values uh, it's interesting. So I think they, they've sort of, it's, this is an idea that whose time has come, really. You know, Discovery was is a maybe chance to see that push to its fullest. But Voyager kind of copped out. I mean, Voyager, <laughs> you know, within weeks, it's like, well, it's fairly normal. And, and the McKee crew who are on board, who are meant to be kind of terrorists, they're okay, really. So this has the opportunity to really kind of push Star Trek. And I, and I think one problem Discovery did have was because it was so close to the original series in terms of the timeline. They were limited in what they could do. You know, Canon was always going to be the enemy in a lot of ways. But here, they're going into completely uncharted space. It's going into areas that Star Trek hasn't gone before. And that's got to be good for the franchise because one of the problems that Star Trek had in the 90s was that everything was kind of getting on top of each other and they were exploring very similar ideas. And here, they're doing the opposite. Nothing they can do can affect the uh, the stories of the past. Although I do like the fact that they tied up one of the loose ends by, I think, book refers to the Time Wars, which I guess refers to the Temporal Cold War, which te- which was the initial setup for Enterprise, if you remember that. So it actually ties right back up into the um, the opening of um, of Enterprise, where there clearly is time travel and there's a uh, something has happened between the end of the Star Trek that we know and where we are now in the timeline. So it, and and the offhand reference to that does show at least that that temporal cold war is kind of canon in the universe still i mean i think also the fact that they're taking out really central parts like the warp drive um and the federation and the federation itself yeah it makes a huge difference not only that but it's almost like now before they were the police officers they're almost going to be like the the rogues like you're not supposed to show your your federation badge and things like that even though they're trying to find other members of the federation so it's almost like they're on the other side now and immediately she's pretty much a criminal because she like crashes the ship and then has to like beat up all those people at the market and steal stuff. So she's already like really gone <laughs> gone to that side. Did anyone else think that they were trying to Star Wars it up a little bit? You know, yeah. this base where there's kind of lots of rogue aliens, you've got Andorians, you've got Orions um, being a little bit shady, you know, it felt like uh, walking into a Star Wars cantina a little bit. Yeah. Hive of scum and villainy. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely yeah and and like you know they they've sort of mentioned that but i have a feeling that they they might try and go for a slightly lighter tone for for it for this um season and so maybe that's kind of the start of it because like you said you're going to see them out of character really and um out fish out of fishes out of water and so it kind of lends itself a little bit to more of a comedic slant as they try to figure stuff out and they're like now the misfits as opposed to having to be the sort of uniformed professionals. So, yeah, I think it'll be, I think it'll be good. Yeah. And uh, of course, let's spare a thought for uh, the, the best new character, which is of course uh, grudge the cat. <laughs> yeah. 
Now with Book, I felt a little bit like his job was to deliver exposition. He was very efficient at giving Burnham all the information that she needed. <laughs> uh, yes, but he also double-crossed her quite nicely when they were on the... Um uh, on the station and send her towards the vault rather than um, where she wanted to go. And, and that was a kind of a quite nice thing. I think there's a little bit of, of, of darkness and roguishness in there. There's a hand soloness about him, which I think lets him off the, uh, the, the role he plays in explaining what's going on. I hope so, because otherwise he's going to be Neelix. <laughs> you know, the guy from this sort of new destination who kind of shows you the ropes. I don't know how good he is at cooking. <laughs> <laughs> See him in the chef's hat later. Well, I think we've got to guess that she will find the Discovery crew. I mean, the trailer suggests so. You, you're right. It's interesting to see how long that she's out there on her own, I guess. Yeah. The trailer definitely suggests that the rest of the crew that we know and love are in it. So it's just a question of when they reunite, I guess. I hope that we get to see the rest of the crew um, because they're, they're great. But also, I'm kind of enjoying the, the story of her being out on her own. So um, so maybe there'll be like a little mini arc where she, uh, where, you know, where she has to find, find them and, and, uh, and reunite with them. But as you say, I think it's a better show when they're together. I think we've also got to find out who's going to be captaining the ship this time because, you know, Saru is acting captain. They seem to want to change it every year. So it's going to be like defense against the dark arts at Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like yeah. a revolving door. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, assuming that that, um, that Saru will be uh, will be captain and, um, uh, and and she'll be second or science officer still or something, I, I guess that's, that's a good way to do it. I'm also, was Michelle Yeoh in the trailer as well, which surprised me? She definitely travelled forward with them, which kind of confuses me a bit because I think they've been talking about her being in a Section 31 spin-off. Right, she exactly, is, yeah. exactly, yeah. But then, yeah, that's the thing. You don't know how all the shows link together, so you don't know whether she'll spin off from this season or, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, and she's she's kind of the almost the best one to be kind of stuck on some crazy planet with full of, like, rogues and... Uh, Vigilantes, isn't she? That she, like, she that would suit her. <laughs> well, she's not going to spend half an episode debating about the Prime Directive, is she? <laughs> exactly. No, no, no. She's she's a great character. She's a great character. Yeah. I her think and the, the, book, that would be good <laughs> together. <laughs> yeah, in fact, actually, that we'll watch that show. So I mean, that's the yeah, spin-off. We I would, I would. The Mandalorian is back on Disney Plus on 30th of October, and I don't think I've been more excited about any other show this year. <laughs> I reckon it's the best Star Wars that Disney have done. I think I've said that before. Now, why do you guys think it works so well? Baby Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to rephrase that question. Apart from Baby Yoda, why did it work so well? Oh, there's so many things you can say about it. I mean, clearly the cast and crew uh, have uh, a love for what makes Star Wars Star Wars. You know, there's some great people working on it. Uh, John Favreau, Dave Filoni, and they they know what what are the nuts and bolts of Star Wars. But I think it's just a great a great premise. It's just set at, at a time in the um, Star Wars universe that I'm really interested in. You know, it's kind of just just after Return of the Jedi, so it's it's kind of there. Real real stormtroopers in it because of the Imperial remnant, but it also calls on lots of tropes from kind of westerns that were always a bit of an influence on 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 uh, on star wars mandalorian's got this you know man with no name uh spaghetti western thing going on and and, and i love all that and just the, the latest trailer yeah there's another trailer came out this week uh just i'm just so excited i watch it over and over i just really want to see what's going on with uh, with mando and, and baby yoda it's just kind of great intriguing storytelling and it's a real kind of timeless story you know the kind of ronin who's tasked with with doing something a little bit unsavory is you know he's he's down these mean streets, a man must go who is himself not mean, and he ends up um, finding that his, his principles, I mean, he's got to fight for something that puts him against overwhelming odds. And these are sort of timeless stories. And The Mandalorian's got all of that with uh, with blasters and TIE fighters. I mean, what's not, what's not to love? 
And that's, I think that's the key. It's, it's great storytelling. And even if you know nothing about the Star Wars world, it can completely pull you in. It's got great action. The visuals amazing. All the different characters are so cool. I mean, even the, even the stormtroopers have great personalities <laughs> in it, you know, and then on top of it, you know, baby Yoda just, obviously it just makes it but then and each episode is is often its own kind of standalone so it feels like a mini movie each episode and and then the end of it you are sort of wondering do I want him to take his helmet off or not and there's just so there's just so much love all the elements were good anyway but they brought them together brilliantly and it's really addictive and so it's 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 just a a, a, a fantastically well-made piece of storytelling and there's elements in it that make make you realize that it's aware also of where it fits into canon but without being slavish or without requiring you to be an encyclopedia of knowledge the fact that for instance we're pretty sure that the dark saber is going to be in it that the mandalorian um uh, lightsaber weapon right and that kind of harks back to uh clone wars and rebels and and the the expanded universe so if you if you have if you have those things in your knowledge if you've been watching those things it it, it speaks to those and that's a nice little easter egg but if you don't it's just a really cool thing that's that's kind of new, and I'm sure the show will kind of explain it in its time. So, it's it's somehow walking a really difficult tightrope between being part of law and being part of that universe and knowing what's what's important to the universe, and also being really straightforward, simple, exciting storytelling, um, kind of serialistic storytelling for newcomers. I think one of the cleverest things they've done is bring in Dave Filoni because he was the guy who ran the Clone Wars, he ran Rebels. And he kind of had George Lucas's ear when he was working on the Clone Wars. Now that George Lucas has left, you know, Lucasfilm and other people are looking after Star Wars, he's the closest thing to George Lucas in terms of the knowledge and having that understanding of canon. And, and actually bringing him in to work on this show just helps it to tie into parts of the Star Wars universe that aren't the movies. You know, mm. he knows what happened in Clone Wars. And in Clone Wars, they had loads of stuff with the Mandalorians. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, before Clone Wars, really, the Mandalorians were something who dressed like Boba Fett. But now we've seen loads of their mythology and, and like civil wars among them and why they use their rocket packs and, and why they've got the armor. This is kind of harking back to that with this mythology that most of the Mandalorians are gone because the Empire carried out this great purge. And, and it's brilliant. Not the Great Purge, but, <laughs> but as, as a setup, you know, this bounty hunter who's kind of trying to find out more about his past, but also has this mission to save this creature who is incredibly cute and should be a disaster in terms of, you know, remember how much everyone hated the Ewoks? Baby Yoda should be up there, but no one hates Baby Yoda. Baby Yoda's amazing. I like Ewoks. I like the Ewoks as well, but yeah, Baby Yoda's great. See, and that's a really good point. And I think there's, um, it's fascinating that, of course, the Jedi are also enemies of the Mandalorians. So that's, that's. Yeah, that's true. Enemy sorcerers. Enemy sorcerers, which is a great, yeah, absolutely great line, right? Which is from the end of season one. It's in the the, the current trailer, but it's in the, the first trailer for, it's in the first trailer for season two, but it's actually a, a line from the, from season one, which is that, they're a uh, you know they're a race of enemy sorcerers, which is a great a great description of, of the Jedi. But it's interesting that it does set it up as um, you know as, as Mandalorian is not celebrating the Jedi in the way that the the main stories do, the main yeah. big screen stories do. And I like the fact that we're telling stories that aren't all about uh, you know the Skywalker family's Jedi destiny. I, you know we're kind of set at odds to that. Obviously, the Mandalorian was the first uh, live action Star Wars TV show. Do you think that this kind of serialized storytelling is what Star Wars needed? Because, you know, we've had 11 live action movies. 
a lot of people weren't that keen on The Last Jedi or Rise of Skywalker solo as well. You know, people feeling that the movies kind of lost their way a bit. Is TV where Star Wars has its natural home now? Seems to be. I don't think you can do it much better than Mandalorian, can you? So who knows? I mean, if they make if they make those episodes a bit longer, you pretty much got a movie anyway. So it's hard to set because at the same time, those movies were, you know, they were the foundation and, and you and you don't know what the next movie will bring and how good it will be and what people will think of it. So maybe they just had a bit of a slump, but, but you know, they're absolutely the top of their game with the TV stuff. If it carries on on that level, then they'll be minted and you and it you but then at the same time you think, well, if people really love the TV series, they're still going to want to watch the movies anyway. I mean, I can't imagine the, the Star Wars movie not doing well. I think there's a big difference between The Mandalorian and the recent movies, and it really feels like there's a plan. Mm. You feel like they know exactly where they're going with The Mandalorian, and, and obviously the Skywalker saga turned into a game of consequences, sort of... J.J. Abrams has done The Force Awakens. He says, hey, Ryan Johnson, what do you want to do? And he sort of throws a massive curveball, uh, which they didn't really know what to do with when it came to The Rise of Skywalker. And actually to make this sort of multi-billion pound franchise and not know where you're going, in hindsight, seems a little bit, let's just say adventurous. <laughs> courageous. It's a very no. courageous decision. Um, uh, and it's even more strange when you consider that um, Lucasfilm was part of the Disney family and Disney have done such a great job with Marvel planning out so many um, Marvel mm. Cinematic Universe movies right, making yeah. them all locked together um, beautifully like Lego and they've done that on TV and film both so it's a strange that they haven't really had such a uh, a great overarching vision on screen for Star Wars but they do have the talent there clearly they do and John Favreau is involved uh, in uh, in the Mandalorian, and he of course was the brains behind Iron Man and, and so on. So you'd hope that he's bringing some of that now to um, to making the TV shows fit together. So ultimately, they need to stop firing the directors, right? And then actually have, <laughs> actually have someone for a whole bloody movie. They might be actually onto something. Maybe John Favreau will show them the way. I'm surprised that he hasn't been given the reins for a Star Wars movie yet. If you make a Star Wars movie at the moment, you've kind of got to, up until now, you've had to play with a certain set number of characters. You had to, you know, you've had to um, set within very tightly within the canon that, that the movie is set up. You've had to be buried under this weight of, you know, what is the destiny of the Skywalker, uh, Palpatine and Solo generations. One of the things that the Mandalorian's got rid of is that it doesn't care about any of that really that's kind of happening elsewhere it's almost like i kind of liken it i know we've mentioned the fact that it's very kind of familiar to those kind of westerns that um Mm. that that um, clint eastwood played in but if you think of the good the bad and the ugly one of the things i love about that that film is that the fate of of america and the civil war is kind of happening but it's kind of happening over that hedge over there and we're following these characters here these kind of roguish characters who sort Mm. of don't care about that very much and mm. that's what you get impression you get with the Mandalorian, which is there is a universe going over here and there's kind of politics and we're sort of maybe, you know, walking very close to that shore, but we've got characters over here who've got their own lives to lead. Whereas the, the Star Wars movies so far, they've had to kind of be over there, over that hedge, talking about those, those large scale, those kind of galactic dynasties and, and uh, those big legends, um, which makes me wonder how well my other star wars tv shows like the uh obi-wan show the mooted obi-wan yeah. show uh and so on will do because they have to go back into that pool of talking about the legends don't they 
Yeah. Well, that that period that Obi Wan will be set in, which is between Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope, that's the really crowded bit. You know, they've done Star Wars Rebels, they've done Rogue One, they did Solo, that's in there as well. Um, the Cassian Andor sort of Rogue One prequel, that would be in that sort of time period, and it's all sort of butting into each other in terms of canon. I think what they need to do for movies is do what Star Trek's doing with uh, Discovery and just pop it in an entirely different time period or a different part of the galaxy. You basically take it as read that it's a big galaxy and that you know people don't know at one end of the galaxy what's happening elsewhere. So you can do what you like. So why sort of rein yourself in with the same old characters? You had five Star Wars movies in, what, four or five years? And that was nearly as many Star Wars movies as there had been in the whole of history before The Force Awakens. You know, it was really crowded. And now they are taking a bit of time, and they've got Kevin Feige from Marvel working on something, Taika Waititi, who directed Thor Ragnarok, and also directed episodes of The Mandalorian. So they're talking to really cool people who could make a really good movie, I reckon. Yeah. I think Favreau's just realised there's a niche. We want some space cowboys out there with with babies. (laughs) It is something we've not seen before, so he's just figured out the niche and he's gone for it. Now, is it true that Jar Jar Binks is going to be in the Obi-Wan TV show? I've seen the rumour. I've also seen a rumour that they're going to have Hayden Christensen in it and it's going to flash back regularly to their time together as Jedi. Wow. And and also, the other rumour is that it's going to be a season-long deal. You know, it's only just one short story, which I think would be great because you don't to stretch it out. They're going to go Watchmen on it. Until it's really successful and they say, yeah, we really ought to do more of this. <laughs> I mean, there was always the expanded universe that I could never keep on top of with with books and comics and games as well. I should say, I think one of the best Star Wars stories ever told is the Knights of the Old Republic um, games, the two games, particularly the second one. Not canon uh, anymore. I know, this is it. A lot of this stuff is, is now is now rejected, isn't that canon? But that was great. There was always more Star Wars than I, you, know, you could probably con- consume. Any, any rational human could consume. My apologies to anyone here who has attempted to, to, to read it. But yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I think I'm on top of, with Marvel, for instance, by way of comparison, I've seen all the movies in the MCU and I've watched a bunch of the TV shows, the ones I can get my hands on, so all uh, the services that I have. So I'm up to date with uh, the Netflix um, street-level heroes, the Defenders, and I'm also, you know, I've watched Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and even... Um, cloak and dagger but then i realized that i've not seen uh, legion i've not seen the runaways or whatever so you know and suddenly you realize oh god there's more than you can keep up with so will star wars be like that yeah, maybe but i you know i i i learned to live with that and also for me as well you know i know that these like for marvel for example i know that these are really well-known characters that come from comic book lore and i I'm not a comic book reader. And so I know there's an absolute wealth of information out there. And it also means that I think when I watch a movie, it is different to when somebody who has invested time into the, the um, expanded universe watches it. Cause there's all those Easter eggs and, and the expectations of what characters should be and all sorts of things going on that I'm sure doesn't necessarily hit my radar. Um, but it also, it's nice in a way to do it that way because they're such good movies standalone and they do a good job of explaining the connections that they want you or that you need to know that um, I don't really feel like I'm missing out by not necessarily knowing all that other information. But no, I think Marvel have kind of done it the right way. So, but I will never be able to catch up. No, I need, I need like eight pairs of eyes working, (laughs) working separately in order to do that. But, you know, I've already sort of accepted with Star Wars that I can't stay on top of it. For instance, I haven't watched any Rebels. 
apart from the uh, the first episode, I saw that at San Diego Comic Con, but I've not watched the series, so I'm not, I'm not up to date with that. So I, I realise I've already part of me and my soul has accepted the fact that I'm always kind of going to be a little bit missing some of the backstory. It's time to leave the comparative safety of a galaxy far, far away behind. In fact, those of a nervous disposition should probably turn away now because just in time for Halloween, part two is taking a turn for the scary. Welcome to part two, and it's time to welcome this week's guest. It's Louise Blaine, a journalist and presenter who works for the likes of Games Radar, T3, BBC Radio Scotland, Tech Radar, BBC Click, Radio 4, and the Evolution of Horror podcast. She knows her scares, which is why she's joining us for Halloween. Hello, Louise. Hello, how are Hi, you? Louise. Welcome, hello. It's also perfect timing for The Haunting of Blind Manor, which is Netflix's follow-up to The Haunting of Hill House. What do you guys think? Full disclosure, I also did, a, before I even talk about it, I am available on Netflix's YouTube talking about this, but it's not promotional and it's not an ad because I really <laughs> love, I, I love The Haunting of Bly Manor, despite the fact that it's very, very different from Hill House. And I think a lot of people have been divided on Bly Manor simply because it's not Hill House, but I kind of see it as this lovely giant, rich gothic romance that broke my heart a little bit so i do love it i agree with you you know absolutely in fact they even allude to this in the final episode don't they that it's 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 not a ghost story it's a love story and actually it is it's so and it's a little bit there's a little bit of a soap opera around bly manor as, as it goes on but i kind of absolutely i wasn't sure at first but i kind of I kind of my heart was broken a little bit by those characters totally. by the end totally i was left i was bereft i was properly sobbing and it's the first tv show in a long time that i sat and cried not just at the end but there was multiple times in other episodes where i just thought this is just mike flanagan does such a good job of sneaking in where you've you're you think you're waiting for scares but actually you're not you're getting to know these characters and love these characters and i think he'd especially and we're not obviously this is no spoilery but there's an episode where you become so attached to one particular character that I mean, by the end of it, you're just like, well, that's me in love with this character forever. I've just shipped, <laughs> shipped multiple people and it's, and it's wonderful. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm a really big fan of it. Did you think that in a way that the haunting of Hill House was one of the worst things that could have happened to Bly Manor? Because it is really different. You know, it, the haunting of Hill House is properly scary in a way that perhaps Bly Manor isn't. And I think a lot of people were expecting this to be the same kind of haunted house thing. I, I do think a lot of people wanted it to be that. And I think a lot of people were genuinely afraid of Hill House because of what Flanagan does with the balance of scares and also emotional connection. But he sacrificed a little bit of those scares to do his side of a romance. And Bly Manor is very artful. It, it looks a lot like a painting, especially the black and white episode is gorgeous. And it's much less in your face than, say, the episode of Hill House that's all shot in one shot. You know, that incredible thing. You've not got anything like that. Um, so I do think it potentially was, I mean, Hill House is close to a masterpiece as I think is possible for at this point but I, I do think it, it was it's really unfair to compare them because imagine, imagine Bly Manor had been the first thing you'd seen you'd have thought that was wonderful you wouldn't say oh where's the bent neck lady but so I, I do think it is unfortunate actually I have to say I, I am actually that that person I didn't see Haunting of Hill House so that's a confession for here on the ah. podcast so I came into Bly Manor cold and there's a there's a kind of a reason for that which is I, I've read both of the the books that these are you know loosely based on and I have here for the reader at home I'm currently holding up my copy of Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House which terrifies me it terrifies me it's a, it's a, it's a what, what, the book or what's inside it 
<laughs> the, 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 just just the cover, just the cover alone, Rich. But no, the um, the, the story itself is 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 a is a very very scary uh, a scary um, book, and it's been it's been adapted for a film a, a, a few times and been the inspiration of others, and they've all been terrifying. So when it came to Netflix, I was too scared to watch it. This is true. I was, I was too scared to watch it, and I've been sort of summoning up the confidence. And by the time I'd cut the courage together to watch it, Bly Manor was out, so I just would decided to just catch up with everyone else and go straight into that. So maybe that was the right thing to do. Maybe I'm kind of now primed to go back and see what what Hill House did. You made the right choice, I think, definitely the right choice. But also you might be, because um, it's not a direct adaptation in the same way that a lot of things have been the adaptation of Hill House, it's, it, it, it veers from the source material, shall we say. So you might be you might be sad, but it never does anything particularly damaging, but it is a little bit different. Tanabe, you've dabbled in Bly Manor, haven't you? What did you think of it? Yeah, I think dabbled is the right word. I was sort of half watching it, all the lights on, uh, trying not to look completely because horror is not generally my thing. And I was, I think my anticipation, it's one of those things where my anticipation of what was going to happen was possibly worse than what actually happened um, in the first couple of episodes, at least. Like scary kids, creepy kids is yeah. just, oh, it just gets me every time. But it was beautifully shot. It was it drew you in from the beginning. I love that era as well when they shot it. It's one of those where I'm not sure I can finish the whole series because <laughs> I just you have to myself. You can do it. I do yeah, it. Yeah. Okay. It All actually, right. I think, gets, like, gets less scary as it goes on. Less, it becomes, oh, does it? Yeah, it becomes more oh. of a becomes more, more of a kind of romance as you get to know the characters. Yeah. Okay. So maybe maybe I'll go for it. Yeah have a drink first um and state myself but yeah i'll i'll see but it was it was brilliantly done i can see why it's really popular and i don't have any experience of the books or so so again i was going in with um virgin eyes to the whole thing it's funny because i can't remember the last time i watched something similar and i don't know if that's just because it is fairly unique or i just don't watch anything like that <laughs> well do you think mike flanagan's kind of created his own genre here because obviously he's made movies um, oculus is fantastic that didn't like doctor sleep so much but you know there's some good bits in it but he's telling these ghost stories in kind of long form and jumping around the timeline dropping in shocks with this kind of quite romantic story that's told over a quite a long period I've been reading a lot of Mike Flanagan quotables and I think I really like the fact that he said that he wanted, even if you took away the supernatural elements, he still wanted it to work. So it's this idea that he's creating something that even if it didn't have scares or spooks or horrible creepy dolls and hidden ghosts in the background, that it would still function. And I think that's probably why I, I really like Dr. Sleep. Rich, like I don't know why I just I loved it. I didn't I, I didn't expect to be able to watch a sequel to The Shining and think anything other than twitched slightly, but I thoroughly <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, but I think in that as well, he kind of looks at people's ghosts and our own ghosts and what we take to things. Because he also said something about the fact that anytime we fall in love, we create a ghost. And I loved that idea, the fact that we're creating our own ghosts. The longer we live, the more ghosts and memories we create. And he toys with these memories in such an amazing way and leaping between different ones. And suddenly you think we are all haunted by the ghosts of our past. And if we enter one of his mansions of ghastliness, then they'll be reflected back as as in mirrors. And and I think that's a really fascinating concept. Absolutely. And in fact, the book, The Turn of the Screw uh, by Henry James and the Blind Manor actually pulls on a number of, of Henry James's 
stories, but the, the, the turn of the screw, there's, there's interpretation of that, that is actually all happening in the, um, the governess's head that it's not, not uh, unlike the haunting of Hill house, for instance, where Shirley Jackson de- said there's definitely ghosts involved. It's possible to interpret um, the Henry James story as being all in the head. And a little tiny bit is preserved in this, in this um, mini series, because actually the, um, the governor, uh, in this case, an au pair, uh, Danny's head, the, her dead fiance is almost certainly entirely, her own PTSD, isn't it? It's her own sort of fear for that, and that, that's so. He's, he's less of a ghost than than the, the the ghost that is definitely there haunting the um, the manor. So there's a little bit of that 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 preserved there, and you, and so you're right. I think there's it's pulling on all of those things. There's definitely it definitely does bring in the supernatural, but also each character has their own ghost, and and some it, certainly at least in her case, and maybe maybe others, the ghosts in inverted commas are actually the the visions they 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 show themselves in their memories, aren't they? I think it's very clever actually the way it plays with the rules of the ghosts. So you you have the real ghosts but there's other things that you think are ghosts but they're kind of as dave said in people's minds and and he kind of plays quite fast and loose with the rules of his world to sort of enhance the story and kind of get into the characters heads and to mess with the audience yes on that note as much as i did enjoy Bly manor there are a few moments when i realize very much that it's being made by and for an American audience, I think. And, and there are certain things there that aren't quite right. Uh, I think the fact that uh, Garth Marenghi, I forget the character's name, but the guy, but Garth Marenghi, yeah. Garth Marenghi uh, says he's done the math. Oh, a Brit would say maths in the 80s. Um, you know, yes. I, I don't think that's the thing. The fact that the, um, the, the British schoolroom has got the Union flag hanging everywhere, I don't think that's the thing that yeah. the British schools yeah. do. Don't even get me started on Peter Quint's Scottish accent. Because, <laughs> because that's particularly twitch-inducing, simply because it's almost there. The vowels are so close. They're so close, and then they're not. And he's, also, his voice has descended about six octaves. Why is it so low? <laughs> People from Scotland don't all sound like that. That's not how we sound. There's also Henry Thomas, who's an American actor playing English, and he's actually criticising another character's English accent in there. And it's like, dude, have you heard yourself? (laughs) Funnily enough, I know this is going to make me sound awful and xenophobic and terrible, but I found his accent just as annoying as plenty of British actors doing period drama, except (laughs) the evil twin. The evil twin was somehow worse than him. So anytime the evil <laughs> twin spoke, he was terrible. But otherwise, I kind of was like, I'm on board with his. I can do this. These English, they all sound the same. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really think that mostly. But um, yeah, yeah. but yeah, I didn't I didn't dislike. I, I also think it's really important, actually. I really, the reason that I actually forgave a lot of the accents is because I really love the anthology approach, which is that kind of... 10 people in a theatre just putting on a play and it just so happens that that play is has millions of dollars in budget and directed by Mike Flanagan and I don't I can't, I find that very appealing I mean I'm really quite glad Kate Siegel didn't say anything really in episode 8 because her accent was quite dreadful but at the same time I can understand I almost like it when you say oh who's it gonna who's gonna play this this time kind of like American Horror Story where you're like I really love that that person's this person this time around so I'm very willing for all of those actors to come back and try terrible accents again just so I can see what see how it plays out it's like a giant budget test sort of rep rep company right it just feels like um you know Mike Flanagan was was making it and they were starting to cast and then some network exec from from Netflix flew over and just was like I really like this person (laughs) why don't we get them in a dress in the house this way yeah let's do it (laughs) there's no reason they can't just find a load more classic ghost stories and give the same treatment because you know, they've been very loose, yet at the same time, 
faithful to what's there. You know, it, it's a very clever way of adapting classic ghost stories, which are often quite short because, yeah. I mean, Turn of the Screw is not a long book, is it? No, absolutely. They could do this with M.R. James, for instance. I can imagine them to, but and, and what they'd have to do is what they've done with Henry James is that the, um, the, the, a, a nine season episode, each episode, one of the characters would, their, their particular ghost would just be drawn from a different M.R. James story. I can totally see that, that happening. That would be fine. I didn't realise that episode eight was the romance of certain old clothes, which I hadn't read. I'd read The Turn of the Screw, but I hadn't read the romance of certain old clothes. And it, you wouldn't think that they had just managed to mash everything up. Um, I'm now rereading that, reading that for the first time and rereading Turn of the Screw. I'm sort of intrigued to see what they'll adapt next and what the next haunting of could be. And I think I'll, you know, I'll almost certainly watch it. Me too. In Rewind this week, we're going back to 2000 to look back at Final Destination. It was part of a renaissance of teen-fronted horror, things like Scream, The Faculty, I Know What You Did Last Summer, but this kind of had a very different twist to it. The killer was, well, death. It works really well, doesn't it? It still holds up Final Destination. That's the first thing that I thought watching it. And actually, the second thing I thought was, I don't think I found this plane crash this horrific back when I watched it for the first time. (laughs) But I have been on so many planes since that everything about it, because it's what you do when you get on a plane. You look at the metal on the way in the door. You look at the other passengers. You think about everything. And it just picks up so incredibly well in terms of every detail that you pick up on the way in. And then it it annihilates everyone. And it's funny because you go, I have seen this in every Final Destination movie since Um, it's not that I'm not expecting this but it still manages to surprise and it's still really entertaining and also really nasty and funny at the same time funny is a really good thing actually because I so my confession is I didn't I've never seen it before so I watched it. I watched it for this podcast. I'd ne- I didn't see it at the time twenty years ago, and I, I'd never seen it in, in the intervening years. So I watched it uh, in preparation for, for talking to you guys about it. And um, what I was taken with was I wasn't expecting it to be a comedy, which is what it, how it totally played to me. See, for the first part, the plane crash is horrific, the first vision. But then after that, it's just setting up a series of sight gags, isn't it? That's that's <laughs> it. They move from one sight gag to the next as as he's moving around his bathroom, and you're kind of going, oh, whoop, whoop, and it's uh, you know, and it's and it's just this kind of slapstick. Oh, the thing's going to bounce off there, and then it's going to get a knife. And sure, there's a, there's a bit of blood, but actually, it's 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 kind of too much. It's, it's just a joke, isn't it? And that's that's kind of what, how I totally. saw it. Yeah. I mean, technically, they didn't move into it being fully, fully, fully joke territory until three, and w- at which point they had two uh, girls in two sunbeds next to each other who ended up getting toasted, and they did a gra- <laughs> they did a, they did the best graphic match that I've ever seen, which is the graphic match from the two sunbeds to the two coffins sitting next to each other. <laughs> 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 but yes, the, I did find it it's still still very very amusing thankfully because people being beheaded it's, it's yeah. never, if it's if it's taken too literally it's pretty grim yeah but it's also sean william scott getting beheaded so he's like if you're gonna behead anyone and it's gonna be funny it's gonna be him <laughs> so. he was already sniffler at this point wasn't he yeah i think so yeah, oh, was yeah. He? i know it's not horror because i enjoyed it and uh so <laughs> and i watched the whole of it and i've watched it probably about four or five times um but it's it is great and it, it does make you think because you literally could be killed by anything from water to your headphones to like yeah some random dental um, floss dental yeah. floss <laughs> <laughs> and and i do like that bit because it it does kind of make you sort of like change your perspective so you you think they're going to die one way and then suddenly they change it over another way but and and the fact that they're teenagers i think makes it work better because it doesn't take itself too seriously but it's funny too because you're like how would you react if you were on a plane and then this guy shouts it's going to blow up and then it did and like what would you think about him is he a freak is he your savior is he 
you know somebody who's actually plotted to do it is that that part I think was interesting too like the pace of it is really good as well so you you end up watching it I mean to me I didn't feel like I was sat there for an hour and 40 minutes it felt a lot less no absolutely it it does it does move at a great pace actually there's one point where the pacing lets it down I think which is kind of the epilogue of it it skips forward six months and they decide to go to Paris for some reason um yeah (laughs) movie logic they decide to go to Paris but then and then death catches up with them and my, my brain immediately went are they really not past any traffic intersections in in yeah, six why months, six you know? months? Why, why, why six why, months why, why but i think that death has a, a um passion for theater <laughs> <laughs> all of the deaths in this movie are so well choreographed you know they're beautifully set up there's foreshadowing there um the sort of hints at little things that might happen but also it's never just one thing that kills you it's right. the sort it's, of uh, it's mousetrap isn't it that's what it gets it yeah. it's literally mousetrap <laughs> and it's the foreshadowing too like I didn't notice until I think that must have been my eight or nine three watch of Final Destination last night and I saw the door of the teacher's house has a giant stained glass image of a downward sword and that's literally how <laughs> she dies oh, yeah. and, I, and I'm sitting I'm looking at it going there's the sword that's the one so then I ended up going on to IMDB last night to take a look at the trivia for it and you literally see so Sean Williams so Stifler you when he's looking out at the window for the plane to crash the shadow goes across his neck so you see that he's going to be decapitated so right. you can literally apparently it's like the there's, omen, isn't it yes oh, there's, yeah. there's clues scattered in places that you didn't even think there were clues and that's something that i don't think any of the movies after really bothered with they just went mm. oh we'll just smash teenagers up and it'll be fine but this first one really has this extra layer of depth that constantly plays with you know that the the lorry that killed terry you know that that's that jump scare that we've never yeah. we'd never seen then what we've seen a lot now yeah um, even the color of the bus was the same color as the plane you know it's these little things that are yeah, yeah. and that is one of the best scares i've ever seen because mm. you're so unprepared for it you know they're just chatting and she just steps back you don't even know she's in the road and then suddenly this bus just takes her out the only hint of it you've had is the sort of bus in the reflection you don't know it's going to get her. oh yeah, yeah and yeah. you thought it was going to get someone else and i think um it was another thing i was reading about it and it was the fact that after test screenings they had to extend the scene after that because the audiences couldn't cope <laughs> the, audiences <were> just, <laughs> the audiences were just like oh god we need to recover so they actually extended the sequence after it so that everyone could get their heart rate back to normal before they started killing people again <laughs> which I love brilliant. that yeah, is yeah. brilliant so that's why what they're standing there with blood all over them for yeah. such a while but because but they obviously reacting the same way that the uh, audience would exactly it's like we'll just give them longer to gop <laughs> <laughs> So what I hadn't realised before was that it was written originally as a spec script for the X-Files, which is interesting, and, and hence the uh, the FBI investigation as well, I, I presume. I mean, I can imagine it working as an X-Files episode. It was uh, obviously James Wong, the director, and uh, Jeffrey Reddick who based the uh, who, who penned the spec and, script. And Glenn Morgan worked, worked on it as well, because James Wong and Glenn Morgan were always, you know, the partnership on the X-Files. I think, well, they, they wrote um, Squeeze, didn't they? The, the Absolutely. The Teams one exactly which we which we watched for this podcast not long ago and i can kind of see it working as a working as an x-file i would have had to maybe take out some of the deaths in it just to to get it into episode length but it's an interesting idea with the fbi trying to figure out what it is and and the the victim victims being taken out by by death itself or or you might say perhaps coincidence fate or something is 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 there that's i can see i can see Mulder getting getting on board with that investigation yeah it's a shame they didn't have Mulder and scully in there they have those two guys (laughs) 
who didn't didn't seem even that interested really considering what was happening in that town the same writer has uh he's directed a movie called don't look back which is showing at fright fest this week which will be interesting which is he wanted to make something kind of similar which is about about people who film a horrible thing happening in a park instead of intervening and then throughout the rest of the movie they get what's coming to them it seems. <laughs> That's a great idea. That's a great idea. I would have loved it as an X-Files episode, but there's also loads of X-Files episodes that I feel like I watched that I would have just watched for an hour and a half instead of just, X-Files episodes are so short. Yeah, you know, I feel yeah, like you just yeah. get this tease and then you go, oh, I'm getting into this. And then because you've watched, oh, because I've watched so many horror films that last 90 minutes because that's that wonderful length of time. When an X-Files episode finished, I'm like, oh, I was only halfway through that mentally. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I hadn't yes. processed this fully. I wanted the full story. <laughs> Um, so having not seen this before or any other Final Destination films, what should I work my way through them and see them all? Do they, is there a drop-off in quality? What's, what's the best one? There's a drop-off after three, but two's great. It's got an accident with some logs and a lorry. And three is my favourite one aside from one because it has a roller coaster accident at the start. <laughs> and it's really horrible. But Final Destination four or five has the one of the most tense upturned nail sequences outside of a quiet place because there's an upturned nail on a gymnast's uh, bar and obviously she's got bare feet doing the gymnastics and that is fantastic that is an exercise in hand squeezing you're literally you look at your hand your nails are embedded in it it's wonderful Uh, you know for for schlock horror i think final destination really nailed it in the way that saw just got so nasty and it got really vindicative and even though some of it was i admired the fact that they continued a story for seven of those movies final destination never felt like it got mean Saw got mean and final destination stayed silly so i think you should go until you can't go anymore dave (laughs) right <laughs> okay i'll work my way through them they're all uh they're all on amazon prime certainly i think this one was as well yes yeah surely they must be making another final destination at some point it sounds like they're it's ready for a reboot by now isn't it exactly I mean, it's time for the remake mm-hmm. i mean well the final destination title is getting ever more misleading <laughs> the, yeah. the final final, final destination, destination again <laughs> <laughs> the second to last final destination <laughs> penultimate destination no it doesn't quite work but you're right to rich to mention omen earlier because it did um remind me that there's this kind of uh, it feels part of a of a pattern um of movies like omen so i do know the omen movies very well but where where people kind of transgress in some way they sort of in that in omen of course they, they sort of cross the devil's plans in this they sort of cross they frustrate death's plans and there's other horror books that i've read um with similar kind of starting where then they are picked off one by one and there's kind of foreshadowing of how they're going to be taken out by this supernatural force and and so this kind of having seen this for the first time it did sort of remind me of omen and um books like a, you know i read a lot of, of, of kind of cheesy horror in the in the 80s like um, gary brander's um death walkers and stuff like that which is kind of a similar sort of deal i think are there, are there other movies in that kind of genre of sort of divine retribution or hellish retribution perhaps one might, might say more i think death hunting is down I, th- I don't think anyone did that after final destination because it did it so well yeah yeah i can imagine if you did it now it would seem to be a little bit derivative of the final destination wouldn't it? yeah and also that was such a change as rich was saying like we were so used to killers with knives by that point we'd had the scream and we'd had uh, like we had two screams three screams by that point we'd had i know what you did last summer and i still know what you did last summer and urban legend so all oh, of right. these had, God, had yeah. 
and Cherry Falls. Like we'd had oh, all yeah, of these yeah. stabby and, things. Like, and they'd also, yeah, they'd yeah. introduced the whole idea of the being self-referential and aware. Cause yeah. I mean, this has all the characters who are named after horror movie directors. There's a Hitchcock, there's a uh, rivers, you know, there's, there's all sorts of things like that in there. Clear Rivers. Can we just have a moment to appreciate Clear Rivers as a character? <laughs> Everyone thinking for 20 years that I think it was someone on Twitter that was saying, I thought her name was Claire. I just yeah. thought they were pronouncing yeah. Claire funny. I didn't realize she was Clear Rivers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what yeah, a name. Yeah. Obviously, it's about death killing people, but there is one human face of this in there, in Tony Todd, who plays this Undertaker. Now, mm. is he kind of connected to this, do you think? Or is he just an interested observer? If we're talking about being self-referential, he's just a giant self, self-referential self wave. He's a giant wink and a nod <laughs> to death. I don't think he has anything to do with it. I don't think he's responsible. I think he's there as a, a joyous celebration of, I watched Candyman too. And also, the thing is, a lot, I don't think back then I knew who Tony Todd was. You know, I was 15 and watching my new favorite genre of, of which was horror, but I hadn't done any of my homework yet. So I think that's the interesting thing as well. Like I watched Scream largely as a horror film because I didn't know all the things it was referencing. So I think lots of people after Final Destination, now I go, oh, wow, that's referencing horror history. But at the same time, then when I saw it in the cinema, they were kind of like reading lists, weren't they? You know, you watch Scream and it's talking about Halloween and Friday the 13th. Like, oh, I should go and watch that. And you've got these references in Final Destination. You know, yep. it was quite a big education if you kind of grew up on horror in that era rather than, you know, when John Carpenter was making Halloween. Totally for me. That was my reading list. Because I now watch Scream and understand all the references. You know, she says drive to, or run down to the Mackenzie's. And it's because in Halloween, they're told to run to the Beckers. And it's Casey Becker that's the first person that's killed in Scream. And it's all down to those tiny little moments. But I had no idea of them. Also, Wes Craven dressed as Freddy in Scream. Like in the, he's the janitor cleaning the floor. I mean, all of those things. Now, with I think of all the... There were a lot of trashy horror films that kind of died out in the early 2000s, weren't there? There were just some really bad ones, mostly with ex-Buffy cast in them, My Bloody Valentine being one of them. And I think those all died off. But there was that period of about five years where the teen horror, it was smart and new and fresh. And all of it still stands up. As you say, it was before Saw kind of killed it. You know, and that kind of the torture porn stuff, which was just nasty. There wasn't yeah. the wit to it anymore. Oh, I really love the first Saw for, for in terms of actually just being a really excellent horror film and I even watched the rest of them. But I think yeah, horror, horror had to get nastier afterwards because it, it met its natural form with Scary Movie and Scary Movie 2 and everything that came after that. So you can't parody, parody, parody. You've got to go the other way and you've got to go Eli Roth and you've got to go, you know, James Wan and Leigh and what they did. And I, I really actually... I appreciated that twist of horror because I think I think if you were growing up through the 90s stuff, you felt quite self-referential and then you thought, no, actually, I want something nastier. I want something harder. I want something scarier. And it delivered that. All right, we'll leave it there for Final Destination. We'll be back in a sec to talk about the news. Welcome to part three, the bit where we talk news. Before all that, though, our next episode will be out around Thursday the 5th of November, and the mission is Bond, James Bond. 007 may not be returning until 2021, 
But that doesn't mean we can't look back on his most sci-fi adventure. Is there more to Moonraker than a double-taking pigeon? We'll be finding out. We also have a special bonus episode on the way. Top sci-fi and fantasy magazine SFX has just celebrated its 25th anniversary. To mark the occasion, we've brought together all five of the mag's editors to talk about its history and how sci-fi has evolved since 1995. The first part of the chat will be available from Friday the 30th of October. And don't forget, all of our previous episodes are still available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right, the news. Um, the Stand uh, trailer's just been released for the new miniseries, which is going to be on just before Christmas on CBS All Access in the States. Um, there's been various attempts to turn this into a movie. There was a miniseries in 1994. But now there's a global pandemic on. Does this feel a little bit close to home? I will be the first to admit that The Stand is the only weak point in my Stephen King knowledge. I've never finished it because it's enormous. And it wasn't that I didn't want to, I just haven't and I haven't been back. And you know when you've started a long book and then you can't go back to it without starting again, it's never got to that point where I can start it again. And right now in the middle of a pandemic, I am not sure The Stand is going to be top of my reading list, even if that trailer does look really cool. The trailer is really cool, but I have no idea about the story because all I know right now is Whoopi Goldberg's in it and I was like, that's cool. But but then I had it's Stephen King. I was like, oh no. (laughs) So I don't know. Again, I'm not sure if I should attempt it or not. Oh, they're going to totally dark tower it. Is that your fear? Yeah, so I have to say we're we're a fine lot, aren't we? Because I'm the same. The the, the stand is actually a gap in my Stephen King knowledge as well. So this my my uh, my my, my uh, knowledge extends only what I've read about it. I, I I don't know, but um, the trailer looked. I thought the trailer looked great, mind you. I thought the trailer looked very exciting. So uh, I will give it a watch. It seems very well cast. It seems uh, action packed. I think it's probably one thing where we've been waiting for TV to catch up because I think for a long time everyone was thinking let's make a movie of the stand, and obviously given how long the book is, that was just ridiculous. Um, and actually the kind of mini series idea is, is probably what this was made for the, the, you know, this is the best way to adapt it as long as they adapt it well and they know what they're doing with it and they're prepared to change things where they need to, because Stephen King fans can get a little bit annoyed about changes, uh, you know, do a shining on it, which, you know, famously took a lot of liberties with Stephen King, but probably made it better if they approach it like that, then this could be really good. We don't need another Mist. The Mist TV show was probably one of the worst TV shows I have watched in a really long time. It was completely unnecessary. It was absolute garbage. The acting was terrible. It was uh, it was offensive. So we no more Mists. And I think something that can give things time. And again, what you're saying is not minding about changes. As long as the as long as characters are there and as long as the concept is dealt with better, you know, people people tend to be quite forgiving. Of course, there was a five-season TV show based on Stephen King's story in Haven, which um, so was. Yeah, yeah. You know, which ran for a while, and that was based on oh, the Colorado Kid. And so, that. yeah, exactly. You see, it has it has a, an army of fans, and um, it was, I think yeah. the show was a little bit hit and miss, but actually was was popular and ran you know ran for five seasons. So there is, you know, there there is form in um, in in turning a Stephen King uh, story into into a miniseries. I think the thing with Stephen King is you've got to remember that it's pretty much a coin toss whether it's going to be any good or not, because there's been some amazing adaptations of Stephen. Stephen King stuff you know you think it carries the shining and then there's been Dreamcatcher. you never know what you're going to get and for someone who who's you know such a popular author it's, it's very random how the films turn out so the next Mad Max movie is not going to be about Mad Max it's going to be about Furiosa it's going to be a prequel I am really excited about the idea of this yeah absolutely 100% I loved Fury Road I thought it was absolutely amazing an amazing looking film so so well made the to have that 
that aesthetic and also to make those vehicles look so balletic in the way that they drive around the desert I just, it was an astonishing piece of filmmaking and and just so distinctive the way the characters talk and talk and act it blew my mind i couldn't i came out of watching that film and couldn't talk about it for two days because i just had to process it in my mind what, what what have i seen um uh, but absolutely astonishing and i also think yeah furiosa was was amazing and i think there's something kind of quite bold in the in the, the in the filmmaking there they take you know they take one of the most beautiful women in the world and they cut her arm off and they smear black grease over her face so you can hardly recognize her and that's a bold thing to do with your your leading leading woman and then and then also with tom hardy as well of course you know uh, an incredibly um charismatic uh, actor with with a with a really distinctive voice and they stick a mask over him and he spends most of the film just kind of grunting and 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 um and and, and so there's some really bold choices not at all what you expect from from a blockbuster in their 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 leading lights so she's great and 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 finding out more about her absolutely i'd rather i'd rather find out more about her than i would about uh, about max himself um, yeah it should have been her movie it felt like her movie yeah well, he i think was it just, was her movie it, but it wasn't it was called mad max and when you you ha- and, and I think that's the disappointing thing almost because it was her movie and she is this incredible character and she is, you do cut her arm off and smear Charlize Theron in mud, but then she glows and shines and she's this incredible, incredible searing character that you go, that's who I want to watch. And Tom Hardy is just hidden behind that, max, that, that mask. And that's and that is the frustrating thing of that's that's how that film was made and obviously we've now got Anya Taylor Joy, uh, who's going to be playing Furiosa, which is so exciting because oh my god, look at that girl's cheekbones. She's a wonderful, she, but she's a wonderful character actor who does really interesting things. She did obviously The Witch, where she was she started out in that she was fantastic, but she's done some. She did that strange sci-fi film called Morgan, where she was actually really good, um, and I think she'll be a really interesting person to take that role because I, I just wanted to know more about Furiosa. And I, I was like, I can just leave Max. We've had Max. We've, we've seen Max. Fury Road, that's fine. But I, I do want more of her. And I, I always think I understand why it has to happen in the way it does where, you know, you need to get your, your main male-led film in first and then you can do their follow-up. I'm glad they're doing it and they haven't shelved it for as long as they shelved, you know, Scarlett Johansson for Black Widow. But it's always sometimes slightly disappointing that you've got to wait for you've got to wait for her movie. With Mad Max, I think the world was always more interesting than Max himself. Yeah. But, but then you watch Fury Road and you've got a character who is actually genuinely interesting, and that was Furiosa. It's an interesting world, interesting character. Find out how she got to where she was, because I'm not a massive fan of prequels generally, but you actually felt that there was an interesting story there. You know, and it's just hinted at how she was involved with uh, Immortan Joe. I would like to see where that came from. HBO Max is getting into TV in a big way, uh, and it's not just about uh, trying to fix Justice League. Uh, they're doing a Green Lantern TV show. Now, the Green Lantern movie is much derided. Uh, Ryan Reynolds does everything he can to mock it, uh, mainly in Deadpool. I really want a cool Green Lantern show. Yeah, and um, am I right in thinking that it's going to be connected to the Arrowverse? Now, Tanavi and I are big fans of the Arrowverse, and right at the end of yeah. Arrow... Diggle, who's arguably the best character, uh, looks into a box and sees a green glow. Right, so they 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 were always hinting that maybe that the Green Lantern was in that 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 Arrowverse. Um, so I hope yeah. it's connected to that. Well, they they were they they've constantly been hinting that Diggle could be Green Lantern, and there was definitely talk about um, a David Ramsey Green Lantern. And Mark Guggenheim, who's executive producer in the Arrowverse, is um, one of the producers in the TV show. So you you 
you wonder whether they can do that crossover. Mark Guggenheim is probably the most um, has the most expertise in TV crossovers in the right, world. Right, with all the, all the DC stuff, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and now, as far as I'm aware, David Ramsey's pretty free. Um, but yeah, I think the characters, I mean, they're, they're going for um, a variety of Green Lanterns, right? So uh, I think there's always, I, I hope this is, I think this is Mark Guggenheim trying to kind of make up for the movie. <laughs> See, the thing is i think i think and this is a maybe a secret shame i actually don't dislike ryan reynolds as green lantern i thought the movie wasn't as bad as everyone made out it's, don't get me wrong it's, it's not one of the best it's not great movies. but it's okay it's okay yeah exactly but i yeah if they manage to kind of link it to the universe i thought that'd be pretty cool but i don't think that's the plan at the moment um but that wasn't the intention with black lightning either but that they eventually brought that into the uh, into the universe in the news about this new TV show, they've mentioned some of the lanterns that will be in it. And what they haven't mentioned is Hal Jordan, which is the lantern that Ryan Reynolds plays in the TV, in the movie. So there's a chance, of course, that he might make a cameo. Who knows? I'm kind of all that, all that character would be, even if it's not Ryan Reynolds. Well, it sounded, I don't know. It sounded like to me that they were sort of steering away from Hal Jordan and away from, away from that preconception of the green lantern, because it, it, it's kind of so renowned as, um, as a bad movie that I potentially think that they wanted to separate themselves from that. And that's why they're not, they're not making him one of the main characters and they do have loads to choose from. Right. So why not? I'm, I am amused. I think Rich made a point, uh, Rich made a reference to this, but I'm amused at the end of Deadpool two, when uh, Deadpool has the ability to travel in time and he goes back and shoots Ryan Reynolds, uh, Reynolds in the head for, uh, for accepting the Green Lantern script. So is that now canon in the Green Lantern universe? Oh, that's a good question. Oh my God. But yeah, I would love it if Ryan Reynolds pops up and kills himself. The <laughs> universe would just eat itself. Right, right, right. <laughs> and then breaks the fourth wall and just like winks or something. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. From one classic comic book character to another, uh, it looks like Book Rogers might be making a comeback. Um, now, Dave, I know you're a fan of the 70s show with Gil <laughs> Gerard. Um, do you want to see more Book? I do. I think Buck Rogers is, is, is due a comeback. People have been speaking about it for, for ages. Um, and yeah, it's, I mean, it's a timeless idea. And in fact, actually, if you like the Buck Rogers and the ideas that go into Buck Rogers, there have been other shows that have dabbled with exactly the same territory. For instance, Farscape, which I love, it's a great show, mm. is largely the same kind of story, right? It's, it's that kind of um, good old-fashioned American astronaut gets flung well over here and has to fall in with a group of misfits in a, in a galaxy at war and um in his hour our surrogate our eyes and ears in that in that galaxy and at the same time brings some kind of down-to-earth uh, common sense to to that world and 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 uh and has a you know a, rom- a planetary romance in in on the, on the course of it so farscape is a, is a little bit of that and that kind of buck rogers character uh you know we, we 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 see that that kind of archetype a lot but the actual original buck rogers um yeah, I, you know, obviously started in the 1920s as a, as a, as a short story and then became a syndicated comic strip and, and was super influential in a lot of those kind of serials that uh, along the, around about the same time on the um, in black and white, like Flash Gordon and so on, that influenced uh, George Lucas so um, so heavily. Um, and then the influential 70s show. Yeah, I love that. I, I, um, I love the, uh, the Buck Rogers in the 25th century. I love it largely because the setup is so dark. And the opening, um, the opening credits, the opening theme of that show are so dark. And there's this guy who's 
you know, who's, uh, who's, who's frozen in a horrific uh, space accident and flung forward through time. And you just see the world burning and there's a nuclear war and everything. And it's so horrific. And then it just turns into this kind of disco, spangly disco, a dance off um, <laughs> that, that, of a show, um, which is a little bit of a jarring tone, but, but I do love it. The Buck Rogers story itself, right from the very beginning in the twenties, um, had some really interesting characters. I mean, you know, um, Colonel Will Deering was a uh, was you know this this kind of great female kind of war hero and and uh, and commander. And that's you know it was um, she's a great character, really commanding character in the seventies. But when you realise that she was invented in the twenties, that's even more impressive. And I, and I think that the, so there's there's a lot going on in Buck Rogers to to, to like about about the setup of that world. Uh, it looks like Spidey's going to be getting a new babysitter in the form of Doctor Strange. Um, that seems like a really weird mix. It does, but have you ever seen uh, Benedict Cumberbatch with um, Tom Holland in interviews? They're, they're hilarious. Like, they're hilarious. They're absolutely oh hilarious together. I can't. Can you? They'll be doing that digitally now. I would imagine for <laughs> Junkus if there aren't. Oh <laughs> if there aren't God, future ones. That's true, but that's just brilliant. Could you imagine them on Zoom? Like, <laughs> I was like, their their chemistry is hilarious, and it is constantly like Tom Holland wanting to say something, and Benedict's like, no, but but not quite. It's it's really funny, and I could just. I wonder if they looked at that chemistry and were like, we could make a movie out of this. <laughs> well, they need a new dynamic for him, really, don't they? Now mm. for Spider Man, his uh, there's a you know there's a mentor role free, so exactly. it's, it's someone's going to have to move into it, and it totally makes. It actually makes a lot of sense, really. They share a, they don't share a, well, they do share a similar world. I can see that. I can see that going together. And I always, they are. And also, you, like, I think part of the joy now that we find in Marvel is, are those interactions since the Avengers and we've seen them all playing and killing and fighting together. It's very difficult to then separate them all out into their own things without them crossing over so i think it's really welcome to keep them all together because actually we discovered that that franchise in developing them all independently was great but it's it was it's it was singing you know when they were all together so i think that's what that's what we need more of more crossovers all the time for me yeah sounds good i can't remember what it's like to see a marvel movie it's been too long (laughs) (laughs) Just, just start just you know load up your disney plus and just start all over again do you know what? My friend did that recently, all, what, 20 movies. And, um, yeah, and she, she came to it. And I, I'm actually jealous now. I, I want to get a big TV and, and then just just go for it. That'd be amazing. There's been another new trailer for The Watch. The first trailer was much derided by the fan base. Um, I don't think this trailer is going to help that. Um, I'm trying to give it the benefit of the doubt, adaptation of Terry Pratchett. But... While this changes what you expect of Discworld, I thought the biggest sin of this trailer was it's just not funny. It's just not funny, yeah. I mean, this is it exactly. I think, you know, with even uh, Rihanna Pratchett speaking out against it, it's it's not really sharing much DNA with her her father's books. And I'm a fan of the Watch books, and and this doesn't feel right. I'd almost be more interested in it if it wasn't a straight adaptation of the Watch, if it was just a kind of a sort of a slightly, slightly... fantasy punk type um type story i'd kind of be oh, all right I get that. but the fact that it's it's kind of a you know a take on these characters i i, I feel is is sort of sacrilegious but yeah that as you say i'll, I'll try and take things on their own terms but the trailer just didn't inter- entertain me very much the just don't the, the jokes don't seem to hit their targets the characters don't seem to really speak to me particularly they, they seem to be it seems to be very pantomime somehow while also being in this uh kind of grungy setup i I hadn't actually until we were you know you sent me what we we're going to talk about I did not 
know about the watch. I love Discworld. I love Terry Pratchett. And watching that, and I didn't obviously know about the reaction to the first year, watching that just felt wrong. And exactly what you said, it's like, why, why pick, they're describing it as a pick and mix of Terry Pratchett. No, don't do a pick and mix of Terry Pratchett. Leave it as it is. There's a reason that it's written as a book, not a pick and mix. It is not a Woolworths <laughs> version of a fantasy book. It is not a pick and mix. It is yeah, in yeah. that order for a very specific reason. So maybe don't mess with that. Because I think if you have a budget and great actors and great ideas and ideas for visuals, why do you need to hang it off existing work? Yeah. It's already superior to what you're going to do. So don't don't bring those comparisons. Make your thing, script your thing, and be bold with it. And don't say it's something else. It's kind mm. of setting people up to fail, isn't it? And, and like that. And and I understand that you know in in Hollywood there's a need to kind of to, to pin something to a franchise because you think you've already got a fan base there. But that can kind of backfire. It's almost like if they hadn't just hadn't called it the Watch, it would have been fine because they seem to have been in in the press releases trying to distance themselves now. And essentially, the first line that you get in most of them is the Watch isn't an adaptation; it's a modern and inclusive series inspired by Terry Pratchett's Discworld. <laughs> the worst is there a worse set of words than inspired by? <laughs> inspired by true events, but not actually true. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So they yeah. just oh, well. they should have just named it something else. Yeah. It's a real shame because some of the the stories about the watch have never really been more timely. And, and I, I may have mentioned this on the show before, but I think Night Watch is is one of my favourite books of all time, and an absolutely incredible story about uh, about civil unrest and about complete police complicity in in corruption and about. Uh, and about um, street protests and, and and uprisings and 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 about how history uh, thinks of these things and so on and and actually what what a really relevant story for our time um, why not just develop you know develop a version of Nightwatch exactly as it's written on the page uh, rather than 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 create a kind of a you know a some kind of slightly odd steampunk police procedural which appears to star Captain Jack Sparrow as uh, Commander Vimes I get it. <laughs> Okay, we'll leave it there for this week. Uh, thank you very much, Louise. Thank you for having me. It's thank been loads you. of fun. It's been Thanks, awesome. Louise. Cheers. We'll be back around Thursday, the 5th of November to talk Moonraker. Thanks for listening. It's you, it's me, it's us. <laughs> <laughs>